Well, this year, uh, our Advent series, as you see, is called A Season of Preparation. Uh, the word Advent is, is one maybe we, uh, we don't spend a lot of time thinking about what does, it, what does it actually mean or where did it come from? But Advent comes from a Latin word that, that means uh, an expectant arrival. It, it's a word that, that's loaded with anticipation and expectation. Uh, it means that it's pointing towards a coming of one that we long for. Sometimes I think maybe we forget that, or maybe we didn't realize, and we assume that, that Advent is just a, a way that we can extend Christmas so that Arnie can play Christmas music a couple weeks earlier in the year, or something. Or maybe Advent is just the time when the grocery stores, and we've got kinders, Kinder Surprise calendars at our house this year, put out these little chocolate calendars that every day you get to open a door and have chocolate. I mean, that's, that's, that's a great thing too. But it's so much more than all that. If we think of, of Advent historically, uh, we, we, we back up to before the time of Jesus, so more than 2,000 years ago, we come to this idea that, that Israel was waiting for their Messiah, waiting for their king expectantly for a long, 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 long time. We know that there is about a 400-year silence from when God last spoke through his prophet Malachi until God spoke again, announcing that Jesus was coming. 400 years. Nobody survived that gap. The people were waiting and waiting and holding out hope and waiting and waiting. And so as we prepare ourselves for this season of, of celebrating Jesus' first coming, and also looking forward and preparing ourselves for his second coming, we want to sit in that. We want to think about how we might prepare ourselves to encounter King Jesus. Now, scattered throughout the series, you might have a couple more sort of traditional elements, um, some sort of historic prayers or, or, or sayings or readings and that sort of thing. And so I do want to open this time as we open up our Bibles with a, a bit of a historic prayer of preparation. So would you pray with me? Almighty God, you pour out on all who desire it the spirit of grace and provision. Deliver us as we come into your presence from cold hearts and wandering thoughts, so that with steady minds and burning zeal, we may worship you in spirit and in truth through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I like that prayer. Deliver us from cold hearts that are just sort of tired and stuck. And deliver us from wandering thoughts. Now, my mind can wander with the best of them, and so we ask Jesus, help us to stay attuned to what you have to say to us this morning. Now, if Advent is the season of preparation, sometimes when I think about coming face-to-face -face with Jesus, maybe, maybe especially around this time of year, I start to think, man, who am I that I, Sean, would get to stand face-to-face -face with King Jesus? And there's a, there is a really healthy way for us to wrestle through this, to wrestle with the implications of, of Jesus having come and lived and died for me. The psalmist even writes back in Psalm 8, when, when I observe your heavens, Lord, when I see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you set in place, what is a human being that you remember him? What is a, a son of man that you look after him or her? There's a healthy way to wrestle with this, this sort of uh, awe and reverence. And the Bible uses the word fear of God. But there, there's an unhealthy 
prideful way, ultimately, too, that says, how could God want me around? If, if God is good and holy and all-powerful and all-knowing and all these things, He knows my junk, and how could He possibly want me around Him? How could He want anything to do with me? I've messed up too big. I've gone too far. I've gone my own way too many times. He's probably given up on me. That's the unhealthy way to wrestle with this. This morning, we're going to look at a text that sets the scene for Jesus' arrival. So if you have a Bible with you, and I hope that you do, let me invite you to open up to Matthew chapter 1 with me. We're going to consider the first 18 or so verses. And if you happen to be familiar with uh, Matthew's gospel, with, with Matthew chapter 1, you probably may remember, you may remember that chapter 1 opens with a long genealogy. And sometimes when we start our reading plans in Matthew chapter 1, we're like, oh, just get me through this. Our, our eyes glaze over a little bit and maybe roll back and we just flip ahead. But that's where we're going to be this morning. Our modern translations probably open up Matthew's gospel with something like this an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Literally, the language is saying the genesis, the beginnings of Jesus Christ. And this was, was common language in the ancient world of how to describe a genealogy. These, these types of things were written so that the people could remember who they were and where they came from. They were, they were organized so they could be memorized and recited so we wouldn't forget where we've come from. And this language started at the beginning of the life of so-and-so. But even though the language is, is, is common, Matthew does something really profound here. He actually organizes his genealogy backwards. Humor me for a second and flip forward in your Bibles or click and scan and scroll forward in your Bibles to Luke chapter 3. We have three Gospels in our Bibles, three biographies of Jesus written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each coming at the life of Jesus with, from kind of a different angle and a different audience. And so we've got Matthew who wrote primarily to the Jews. Uh, Luke tried to write an, an orderly account of all the things that happened, uh, more with a Gentile focus, uh, those who were, who were not raised Jewish. And in Matthew 3, he just like, uh, sorry, in Luke chapter 3, just like Matthew does, Luke says, here's where Jesus came from. It starts like this at verse 23. When Jesus had uh, began his ministry, he was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. Here we get into the genealogy. The son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jemai, the son of Jokes. And on and on it goes, right? We get the whole list, and he goes back, Luke does, from Jesus, on and on and on. At the end of the genealogy, we see the son of Adam, the son of God. So Luke traces Jesus all the way back to our first parent in Adam. Now flip back forward to Matthew. Where does Matthew start? This is the genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Who is the list? Who is the first name on the list in Matthew? Abraham. See, it's backwards. He, he's done something different here, and there must be a reason for it, right? Matthew starts really at the beginning of where God called this person, this family, this people to himself. And then he makes his way through a who's who of the history of the Jewish people until he gets to Jesus. And so what Matthew is really saying is that Jesus is so much a point of history that all of his ancestors 
depend on him for their meaning. Without Jesus, at the end of this list, nothing else matters. It's all about Jesus. Now, I was going to read the list for you here, starting in verse 2, but I'll spare you of that. And instead, let me introduce or reintroduce you to uh, a guy named Adam Peter, Andrew Peterson, excuse me, Andrew Peterson, kind of a, a modern hymn writer who has been gifted by God to take Matthew chapter 1 and put it to song. Let's run that video. Father Boaz, Ruth she married Boaz, who had Obed, who had Jesse, Jesse he had David, who we know as King, David he had Solomon by dead Uriah's wife, Solomon well you all know him, he had good old Rehoboam, followed by Abijah, who had Asa, Asa had Jehoshaphat, had Jorah, You'll never read Matthew 1 the same again, will you? I'll, I'll post that, that video on our social media channels after the service as well. I was going to ask Arnie if he'd lead that for us this morning, but maybe, maybe next year. It's all about Jesus. Everything in Jewish history pointed and, and prefigured and, and, and led us to him. And so we want to look at this text. We want to look at how Matthew introduces King Jesus through those begats. We saw in the song, maybe you noticed in the song that he, it's divided, and you can read it in the text here, it's divided into three groups of 14. Now, no doubt there were, there were many people who were skipped over in this genealogy so Matthew could come to this grouping. That's not Matthew being deceitful or lying to us. That's, that, that's the way that these things were written. Sometimes in order to make them memorable, we had to skip some parts to, to order them in 14s instead of more random numbers. But Matthew gives it to us in three groups of 14. 
And I would guess, even if you're not too familiar with the Old Testament, I bet you'd have at least a, a passing recognition of some of the names in this list. Starting in verse 1, we start with Jesus the Christ, the son of David, the first name mentioned in verse 1. This is kind of before Jesus, he was the king of kings kind of of Israel, the one that they looked to as sort of the ideal that, that hopefully will get back to what it was like under David. He, he was the one that, that, that God promised that, that his line would bring forth the Messiah. You can read about that in 2 Samuel chapter 7. The second name and the start of the list is Abraham. It was through Abraham that God promised blessing would come to the whole world. It's not that God picked and chose this exclusive group of people at the detriment of everyone else. God said, no, through you we will bless the whole world. It was always all about all people, always. We've messed that up sometimes. His, this promise came in Genesis 12, which we'll look at in a little bit, and also in 15, and it's repeated again and again through the Old Testament. And these two, David and Abraham, are kind of the, the key figures of the two major covenants in the Old Testament. Promises that God made to his people. Promises that God kept through the whole Old Testament, pointing to Jesus, and continues to keep today. The next name is Isaac in verse 2. This is Abraham's son who was a miracle baby born when Abraham was 100 and his wife Sarah was 99. I am not a biology major, but women don't usually have babies at 90. Excuse me, she was 90, right? It's not a thing. This was a supernatural birth that actually set the stage and even prefigured Mary, who we read about in verse 16, who would also be shocked, although for a very different reason, that she too would have a child, who would be Jesus. Verse 3, we find Tamar, the first woman mentioned in the genealogy. And there's a couple of reasons why this is, is unique and should kind of light, light bulbs up in our head. Uh, usually women were not included in these things. The, the lineage was always traced through the man's side. But here she is. Now Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law. And it was through sinful incest that she had the twins that are mentioned, Perez and Zerah. Now listen. If Matthew took literary uh, license to leave out some names, this might be a good one to leave out. If you're trying to make your history look good, let's try to leave the disasters out. But the Bible doesn't do that. Ever. I mean, they must have left some out, otherwise it'd be huge, right? But the biblical writers, Old Testament and Matthew here in the New, could have really easily glossed over, even omitted Tamar, but they didn't. Because the whole story of the Bible is one where God pursues and redeems his people even when they're complete disasters. We'll keep going and you'll see that this line is not a line of perf perfection. Rahab in verse 5 is the second woman mentioned. She was a prostitute from Jericho who was spared when the people of God came into the promised land. You can read about that in Joshua chapter 2. Also in verse 5 is Ruth, uh, the third woman mentioned. She was a Moabite, so she's not even Jewish. She was a part of the people who were enemies to the Jews, and she was part of a culture that was known for their sexual immorality and even, I believe, child sacrifice. But she was brought into the line. At one point, her people, the Moabites, weren't even allowed to be within 10 generations of Moabites to come into the assembly of God. They were that far removed. But here she is, 
in Jesus' line. And so we get those 14 generations from Abraham to David. The next set starts uh, with the fourth woman mentioned, although not by name. She's just called for us here, Uriah's wife. And she got into the kingly line. We know her name to be Bathsheba. We got, she got into the kingly line through adultery and murder. Lovely. Now, why wouldn't we have her name here? I, 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 this is, I don't want to say this is a guess. This is an educated assumption. But I suspect that the reason that we have her listed not as just Bathsheba, but as Uriah's wife, is to remind the people just what went on here. That David, as king, decided, you know what, I'm not going to go out and fight with my people this spring. I'm going to stay home and just let them go. And he sent Uriah, his mighty man, out to the front. And while he was gone, he took advantage of, her, of his wife. And he got her pregnant. And then he tried to, to get Uriah to come home from the front. And, and I'll just give him a leave of absence. Go home and spend some time with your wife. And people will think that she's pregnant because of you. But Uriah showed this brilliant integrity and didn't go. He said, why should my men be in the field and I'm at home? So then David set it up so that he would be murdered to try to cover up David's mess, his sin. I think the reason this is here is so that the people are reminded that even King David, he was a bit of a disaster too. But God still worked. Starting from Solomon in verse 7, we get a list of kings that lead up to the exile some of these kings honored God. Others were evil. Most were evil and led God's people into sin and idolatry, which eventually led to the city of God, Jerusalem, being uh, sacked and destroyed and the people exiled to Babylon. Now for the Jew, which again, this was Matthew's primary audience. He was writing to a Jewish audience to tell them about Jesus. All of these names would, would have instantly, they would have remembered the stories. They would have heard these things. Maybe they'd memorized the genealogy as well. And so they would have been brought back and, and had all kinds of emotions and images and, and, and the stories they remembered from their history. Then the final 14 go from uh, the generations from the exile until when Jesus was born. Let me say this. All of our families have issues. This family has issues. There's sin and brokenness and deceit and pain and lying and lust and all the things but even with a family tree that crooked the son of god took on flesh and stepped into history so why is this genealogy so important because we can look and we can see that it's through the ordinary broken messed up lives of people in history that god came to earth to rescue us from ourselves from our sin. Nobody would have expected the anointed one, the coming expected Messiah, to have a lineage that looked like this. No one would expect that the king of the Jews would have multiple Gentiles in his blood, in his roots. So for those of us today that feel like we're too far from God, that we've walked too far away, that our sin is too big, that we have spent too much time not caring enough. Maybe we don't even care right now. This list should bring us great hope that we are never too far from God.
preacher and teacher J.C. Ryle looks at this uh, genealogy and he observes that the genealogy of Jesus reminds us that grace doesn't just come down the family tree. But yet here we have at the end of it all the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Though he is the eternal God, he humbled himself to become a man and provide salvation to sinners. This is a, a, ultimately a list of ordinary, everyday sinners who are not beyond the reach of God's grace. And they remind us that his grace can reach anyone. And all this list points us to Jesus. You've heard me say it a few times. I'm going to keep on saying it. It all points us to King Jesus. Well, what kind of king are we talking about here? What kind of, of king are we preparing to encounter in this Advent season? Well, Matthew tells us a few things from this list and highlights it in verse 1. First, Jesus is the Savior. He's the one that came to save those who were lost, those who had gone our own way and bring us back into God's family. The name Jesus is the Greek form of, of the name Joshua or Yeshua, which means Yahweh saves, uh, God saves, the Lord is salvation. A little bit later in our chapter, in verse 21, an angel gives Joseph, Jesus' earthly dad, these instructions. He says, your, your wife Mary will give birth to a son, and you're to name him Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. Remember in the Old Testament, Joshua, who Jesus is kind of named after here, Joshua was the leader that was appointed to take God's people into their promised land, out of Egypt, into the, he was at the borders, lead them into the promised land. But in Jesus, we have a new and better Joshua, a leader appointed by God to take sinful people into eternal life. Jesus is the Savior. He's also the Messiah. We read this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Christ isn't a surname like Franklin or Smith. It would be better to read this as Jesus the Christ. Christ literally means the Messiah or the anointed one, the one we've been waiting for. Throughout the whole Old Testament, there's promise after promise after promise after promise of a coming Messiah who would come and powerfully deliver God's people and Matthew's saying, this is the guy. We've been waiting for centuries, and here he is. We have Jesus, the Christ, the son of David. We touched on this a little bit earlier, but David was promised in 2 Samuel 7 that his kingdom would last forever. And that promise was, was obviously not just of his physical kingdom, because it was under his son that the kingdom split. And it wasn't that many generations later that the kingdom was conquered and exiled and their physical kingdom was gone, wiped out. The promise was talking about a, an eternal kingdom, a spiritual kingdom. And as we follow Jesus today, we're a part of that kingdom promised thousands of years ago. He was also promised, David was, to have an honored son on the throne. And that's where we get the prophets speaking into this too in our Old Testament a couple passages maybe you're familiar with, but we'll, we'll read through them quickly anyways. In Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah writes this prophetically, that the shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse. Remember, you remember from the song, Obed, Jesse, David. You always have that nice bluegrass beat in your head now. It's been stuck in my head all week. <laughs> then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. 
His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. Ezekiel 37, uh, Ezekiel was writing long after David, King David was dead. But he writes this, My servant David will be king over them. Samuel is actually going to be the line of David. And there will be one shepherd for them all. And they'll follow my ordinances and they'll keep my statutes and obey them. They'll live in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob where your ancestors lived. They'll live in it forever with their children and grandchildren. And my servant David will be their prince forever. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, For a child will be born to us, a son given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. And his name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And the dominion will be vast, and his prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David, there it is, and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord's armies will accomplish this. Jeremiah 20, 23 Look, the days are coming. This is, this is the Lord's declaration when I will raise up a righteous branch for David and he will reign wisely as king and administer justice and righteousness in the land. And in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. This is the name he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. All of these passages assume that the promise of God is still coming. Even when things looked bleak, even when they were in exile and when guys like Ezekiel and Jeremiah were writing, when it looked like how could this promise be true because we're not even in their land anymore? When the people were no doubt asking, has our God forgotten about us? The answer was always no. God made his promises and God promises, his promises came true. Jesus is the king, the Messiah. He's the son of David, but there's one more. He's the son of Abraham. And with these words, Matthew takes us back to almost the very beginning of the Old Testament. Here's God's promise to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. He says, Go from your land, from your relatives, and from your father's house to the land that I'll show you, and I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I'll bless those who bless you, and I'll curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all the people on earth will be blessed through you. This blessing of God was always for all people, all people groups, every tribe, tongue, and nation, right from the beginning. God promised through Abraham to, to form and make a covenant people, to make Israel into a great nation. He promised to give them an inheritance on earth, the promised land. And he promised that he would use them to accomplish his global purposes, to be a blessing to all people. And this promise to Abraham is repeated again and again in the book of Genesis, and, and it's, it's pointed back to throughout the Old Testament. And God keeps reminding the nation of his promise. And so ultimately, God works this promise to Abraham out in Jesus, the son of Abraham. See, here's the thing. Nothing that happened in the Old Testament was an accident. There was nothing that happened, even in that disaster of a family tree, nothing that happened that God said, what have I done? Who are these people? I didn't think they'd do this. Every single detail, right from the beginning, right from the fall that we read about in Genesis chapter 3, God said, I'll make this right. I will provide a way. I will send a rescuer. I will bring healing. And right from there on, it pointed to a king that would come. And that king is Jesus. One writer said, God sovereignly directed the history of Israel and preserved David's line because of his plan to send Jesus. Jesus is at the center of it all, the center of Jewish history, the center of our history. Not you, 
not me. We're not at the center. Not our country, not our government, not our generation, not our cultural moment. Billions of people have come and gone on this earth. Empires have risen and fallen. Empires that looked like they were going to last forever. And they're gone. Yet at the center of history stands one man. Jesus, the Christ. Son of David, son of Abraham. That's what Matthew is saying in his begats. Now, if Jesus is the king of all, the one that all history revolves around, then it follows that he should also be king of your life. So let me ask you a question. Is he? Is Jesus king of your life? Here's how we know. When you come up against something hard, or when you come up against stress or anxiety or fear or, or any of these kinds of things, where do you turn first? Do you try to, like I do so often, just try to buckle down and work through it and have another cup of coffee and plow through this thing to get out my own way? Or do you start with saying, Jesus, this is going to be another day. I don't know how we're going to do it. And then maybe get that extra coffee and buckle down and do what God's called you to do. But is he king of your life? When you're thinking about even, not just major decisions, but small decisions. Where do my kids go to school? Where am I going to spend Christmas? Where am I going to, what job should I take? What house should I live? What, all the things, right? Do you start with Jesus? I need wisdom. The word says, if I lack wisdom, ask. <laughs> Here I am, asking again. Is Jesus king of your life? Because he wants to be. It's not like Jesus came and lived this perfect life and then just set aside and said, see, do it. And then wagged his finger at us when we can't. Jesus came and lived the perfect life, perfectly related to God, to others, to creation itself. And he said, this is the example. This is the way you were created to live. But I know you can't do it. And so he went to the cross. And on the cross, he took the punishment, the consequences of all the times you and I went our own way. The Bible calls that sin. Where we have said to Jesus, nah, we're, I, I'm doing this. I know you say it's not good for me. The genealogy tells lots of this, right? David, I know I shouldn't lust after this woman. I know I shouldn't take her. I know I shouldn't impregnate her. But in the moment, this seems like a good idea. Jesus takes the consequences and the pain for all of our sin and takes it, nails it to the cross so that we can have life. That's what we're waiting for. That's what we're expecting. That's what we're anticipating. I want to invite you to make Jesus king of your life. Now, in this Advent season, in the midst of all the things going on, and all the announcements even that we made of things going on, to take time to slow down, stop, Put your phone away, which is sometimes hard for me. And just prepare and make space to meet with Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for this opportunity that we have to be together again. Thank you for this genealogy that's not just a, a random list of names but it tells a story, a story that, that shows that, that, that 
that you have always been at work, that nothing is out of your control, that your plan, even if it looked like it was in trouble, your plan never failed. And at just the right time, Jesus came. Under just the right conditions, Jesus took on flesh and moved into the neighborhood. For my sake, for our sake. And I pray that in this this Advent season, we would look with anticipation towards uh, Jesus' first coming and all that he did, but also look forward to his next coming when we get to see him face to face. And finally, let us look at this in-between time, in-between the first and second coming, and, and see kind of the nowism of the gospel. If Jesus, if Jesus is who you say you are, Jesus, that should have a massive impact on who we are and how we live. So I pray that this Christmas season, as we start to hear the carols come up all over the place that speak truth about who you are, God, help us to find and create and sacrifice to make space so that we can sit in the quiet and ask ourselves, whose kingdom am I? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.